Thank you to our kids. What a um, just worshipful moment having them lead us in song and hearing their voices lead us. Let us, um, let us take a moment and go to God in prayer. God of grace and love, we give thanks that you have invited us into this place. We come to be more than we are today, to be more like the people that you have created us to be. May the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts be holy and acceptable in your sight. Amen. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who harass you. If you only have love for those who love you, what reward do you have? You know, when we hear passages of Scripture like this, we suddenly become less interested in taking the Bible seriously. Right? We do a couple of different things. I mean, Jesus, in many ways, makes a completely illogical suggestion for contemporary living. Imagine if you got up tomorrow morning and you decided to do exactly what Jesus suggests you do here. Turn the other cheek, give to every beggar, respond to every lawsuit by settling out of court for double the amount. What would happen to you? You'd end up broken in the hospital pretty fast. And so when we hear passages of Scripture like this, we tend to rationalize Jesus' behavior, right? We'll say, well, he lived in a different time. It was so easy back then. Even though he did live in a time that was far more violent than the time we live in today, at a time when economic oppression was worse than it was today, but then we also tend to remember Jesus' days with a fairy tale type of fondness. Or we might say, well, he was half human, he was half divine, he lived at a higher level than we do, so of course Jesus can love his enemies and turn the other cheek because he's Jesus. And so he can do those types of things. But then we also forget that he promised us later on in the Gospels that we will do greater things than he did. We will do greater things than he did. And so then we try to make Jesus out to be some idealist. Oh, that would be so nice, wouldn't it? I wish it could be that way. And when we do that, we can easily dismiss what he says. I mean, why would he make such illogical suggestions for living? Most, if not all of us, turn to Jesus for practical solutions for life. Right? Go into any grocery store checkout and there's books full of practical suggestions for Christian living. Right? We want concrete things that we can use that can make sense to us that we can walk out of here this morning and do. We want one little nugget or tip that will change our life for the better immediately. The problem is that most, most of Jesus' most concrete suggestions for living are often his most illogical. This is as concrete as it's going to get. Love your enemies, pray for those who harass you. You want to live a better life the moment you walk out of here? Love your enemies. Pray for those who harass you. 
That's hard for us. So this morning during our time of prayer as we lift prayers up to God, how many of us prayed for someone who had been harassing us? Who was our enemy? It's hard to do. But there's no qualifiers in this statement. There's nothing that lets us off the hook. If we are going to faithfully follow Jesus, we must love our enemies. We must love those that we see as others. We must pray for those who harass us because as Christians, we are called to imagine the world differently. We cannot see the world the same as those who do not follow the Prince of Peace. And one of our biggest impediments to discipleship, to imagining the world differently, is the fear of the other, of those who are different than we are on the surface. You see, because for Jesus and for his disciples and even us for uh, today, the danger of fearing the others is a matter of faithfulness. You see, we cannot be faithful and fearful at the same time. And our fear of the other makes us resistant to the life Jesus calls us to live. In fact, it makes us resistant to Jesus himself. That's right. The fear of the other makes us resistant to Jesus himself, whether we realize it or not, because so much of Jesus' ministry was to people who had been seen as the other. And so it's not unfair to suggest that Jesus teaches us to seek and to see him in those we might consider the other. That enemy that you're loving, that person you're praying for who is harassing you, that is Jesus in the flesh. You see, though, we are good at seeing people as the other people who are not like us, whether it's by race, gender, religion, sexual orientation, ethnic background, economic, family configuration, whatever, we are often good at seeing not as God sees, but as fear dictates us to see. We do it personally. We do it globally. In fact, the State Department in the U.S. recognizes 195 independent nations around, those, around the world and of those 195, only 16 are not currently involved in some sort of active conflict. Think about that. Only 16 are not involved in some sort of active conflict. So far in this year, in 2017, in the first two and a half months in the United States, 33 mosques across the country have been threatened for vandalism or arson. Over 100 Jewish sinners across 33 states have received bomb threats in the last two and a half months. Some of the people who are coming for some of the most devastated parts of the world are struggling to find a place to receive them and to call home. 41% of people who identify as transgender or who are struggling with gender identity have self-reported a suicide attempt in the last year. You see, we are good at seeing people as the other. I suspect that most of us sitting here today might remember a time when we were the other and how that felt. Probably if you've walked into the middle school cafeteria on the first day of sixth grade, you knew how it felt to be the other. 
Tony Chris tells the story about a homeless man in his Portland neighborhood named Harry. And he and Harry began a relationship and a relationship form, a bond form between the two of them. Tony would often go down to the shelter where Harry would hang out and eat and sometimes sleep, and they would spend time together. And Harry was a wise man. He was, he was like Gandhi to Tony Chris. He had all this knowledge and wisdom about the world. The only problem was that Harry was crazy. Harry was crazy. That was the only problem. The main issue was that this homeless guy kept talking about and believed that he was friends with all of these A-list actors. This homeless guy would talk about uh, speaking with Lawrence Fishburne and Anthony Hopkins and Michael Douglas. Hey, I talked to Michael Douglas yesterday. There's no way a homeless guy could. Tony Grizz told him after a while because Harry just kept talking about Lawrence Fishburne and Anthony Hopkins and Michael Douglas and over and over and over that he finally told him, I don't want to be your friend anymore. I don't want to be your friend anymore. The, the, the anger rose up in him and he told Harry, he said, you are crazy, man. You are crazy. Well, Tony went home that night and he felt bad and he went back the next day and um, went to find Harry at the shelter and he wasn't there. He looked around for Harry for two weeks, couldn't find him. Asked people at the shelter, have you seen Harry? Haven't seen him in two weeks. He disappeared, maybe never to be seen again. And so Tony Chris, the wheels began turning in his head. You know, he thought about the timeline and he thought he probably disappeared because I had been so dismissive of my friend. But then also, on the other side of his head, he was thinking, is that really a bad thing? Because Harry is crazy. And I don't have to hear his outrageous stories and his outrageous lies again. Another week went by, and Tony was sitting there with his wife and a few friends that were going to watch a movie at home they had rented. Charlie Sheen was in it, Martin Sheen, Lawrence Fishburne. And about 20 minutes into the movie, Harry walked onto the screen on the video and he stayed on the screen for the next hour and a half turned out Harry was not crazy after all and so here was the question that Tony Chris was left with that day that I think is a good question for us to consider as well he said how many spiritual gift givers have I dismissed because of prejudice ignorance or other similar reasons how many people who might give gifts into my life who might speak truth and love and grace into my life have I dismissed because of my own prejudice my own ignorance or other similar reasons You see, Richard Rohr says that the enemy or the other is not the enemy or the other. It is an opportunity. It is an opportunity for a spiritual gift giver to be introduced into our life. And I'm sure today as we think about the people we've labeled, the people we've dismissed because of our own prejudice, our own ignorance, or other reasons, that it might hit us a little hard about who have I dismissed from my own life who could have spoke truth and love and grace into my life. 
Well, this past week was the 33rd anniversary of the release of the classic 80s teen movie, The Breakfast Club. And it's one of my favorite movies of all time. It tells the story of a day spent in detention. I was never in detention myself, so it gives me a glimpse into what detention is like. Um, and it tells the story of a day spent in detention by people from different parts of the social sphere of high school. And, you know, high school is one of those places we're very good at separating ourselves into groups, right? And hanging out with people just like us on the surface. And so all these, this group of people comes to spend the day uh, with Mr. Vernon, their principal. And it's a Saturday, and they spend all day Saturday in detention. And Mr. Vernon, of course, loathes everyone there and hates that he has to be there on a Saturday. And gathered there on the Saturday is a brain, an athlete, a basket case, a princess, and a criminal. And one of, their, one of their tasks before they can leave detention that afternoon is they have to write about what they learned in detention and give it to Mr. Vernon. And so who's seen the movie? All right, good. I knew y'all were good people. Thank you. All right. Um, so at the end of the day, they come together to write one letter. And this is what's always stuck with me about this movie is the wisdom these high school students show. Here's what they write to Mr. Vernon. They say, Dear Mr. Vernon, we accept the fact that we had to sacrifice a whole Saturday in detention for whatever it was we did wrong. But we think you're crazy to make us write an essay telling you who we think we are. Because you see us as you want to see us in the simplest terms and the most convenient definitions. But what we found out is that each one of us is a brain and an athlete and a basket case and a princess and a criminal. Does that answer your question? And then they sign it, sincerely yours, The Breakfast Club. And then, of course, as you've seen the movie, Judd Nelson walks off, never to star in any movie again. Not only is he leaving, so is his career. But I love that idea that none of us, none of us want to be seen in the simplest of terms and the most convenient of definitions. Every single one of us sitting here today, someone could put one or two simplistic labels on us. And that's how they might identify us, but that certainly does not describe us. And you see, that's what Jesus was dealing with in his day. People had put labels on others. Very convenient, simple labels. How many people do you know that after you get to know them a little bit, you think, well, that surprised me. The truth is, we really shouldn't be that surprised at all. The problem is that we labeled them and defined them in very simplistic ways at the very beginning. We shortchanged them from the day we met them. See, what Jesus, when Jesus says, what you do for the least of me is you do this for me as well, he's saying that our own salvation is bound up in our ability to see him in the other and to serve him in the other, to see our own shared humanity. might be a good time to point out that the man we follow, the reason we are here, the man we are seeking, was widely considered by most in his day to be an other himself. 
we follow someone who was an other. Look at the criticisms of him all throughout the Gospels. He eats with sinners. He eats with tax collectors. He eats with people no one else wants to eat with. He heals people who no one else will heal. He says outrageous things like love and pray for your enemies. I hate to tell you, we're following another. Will Willimon says it like this. He says, the truth is Jesus was other than the God we expected. Jesus was other than the God we expected. We looked for him to sort of come and sanctify our insider stat status to affirm our privilege over others. But when we reject Jesus, we reject that embrace of the others. And perhaps we'd rather fearfully hunker down with folks like us than risk the welcome of those whom Jesus embraced. To say it very shortly, we'd rather die than to be saved by the likes of some of the people that we might call others. As we approach Holy Week, as we approach Palm Sunday and Maundy Thursday and Good Friday and Easter Sunday, as we approach the cross and what that might mean, we hear over and over in voices those who voice a preference for any other means of salvation except the way of Jesus of Nazareth. But the way of salvation that Jesus offers forces us to understand our shared humanity, forces us not to define people in simple terms and convenient definitions. You see, I think the assumption of the sermon series, Unafraid, that we've been in is not that we just want to name and confront our fears. It's easy to do that. It's easy to, to name and confront that which we are fearful of, but we also want to be freed from our fears. We don't want to deal with those fears anymore because we know those fears those fears are a wall to our discipleship. We desire to be free from the power that fear holds over us. Because the truth is, we cannot be faithful and fearful disciples all at the same time. We've got to pick one. Are we going to be faithful or are we going to be fearful? You see, we have already lost so much by being afraid of what we might otherwise treasure. Friends, we've already lost so much by being fearful of what we might otherwise treasure. Yet there is hope. And that's the word I want us to take today. There is hope that we can be faithful disciples. There is hope in the way of Jesus that we find over and over in Scripture. There is hope for salvation in the Jesus we know, the Jesus that loves us all, the Jesus who was rejected and labeled other to the extent that he was put to death on a cross. And even then, God says, I don't deal in simple terms. I don't deal in convenient definitions. I deal in inclusive love. I deal in seeing you as my beloved child. And so for us, as we attempt to be faithful disciples, that's where our own salvation begins with the promise that God's love, God's love reconciles us and brings us together and helps us to see anew in ways that we cannot begin to imagine. And so together, let it be so.
Let it be so. Amen.